Welcome to On the Wet Coast, a podcast about sexuality and ethical non-monogamy of every variety. We talk polyamory and swinging, monogamish and open relationships, from dirty, dirty sex to heartbreak. We share our personal experiences and philosophy, observations and theories, what works for us, and where we fucked it right up. Join us on the Wet Coast. Many of us in non-monogamy land started out in monogamous relationships, not necessarily because those were right for us, but because they were the default. We didn't even know that there were other relationship options. Once we started exploring ethical non-monogamy, we discovered countless variations on the big three, swinger, open, polyamory. Some people have strict definitions of what each of these relationship styles has to look like, but almost everyone we've met in non-monogamy has their own take. Turns out, when you shed the societal expectations of what relationships are meant to look like, you can pick and choose what elements work best for you. On this episode of On the Wet Coast, Flick and I, Kat Stark, are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Liz Powell, psychologist and relationship coach, to discuss building your ideal relationship. Welcome, Liz. Hi, it's so good to be on. <laughs> Thanks for being on the wet coast. Woo! I do like it wet. So, so what are your bona fides in, uh, in relationship coaching and non-monogamy? Well, I mean, I have the professional side and I have the personal side. So I'll do the, like, professional reputation building stuff first. Uh, I have <laughs> I have a doctorate in psychology. Uh, I am a psychologist who has for the last just over three years had a practice oriented towards serving queer, kinky, and non-monogamous populations uh, and helping people uh, either open their relationships or explore kink or non-monogamy or uh, any of those different variations. I was trained in sex therapy in particular at the University of Guelph in their sex therapy intensive program. Uh, for coaching, I've been doing a coaching program and I'm close to certification through the International Coaching Federation. Uh, but most of the reason I work with these communities and a lot of what makes me well suited to work with these communities is that I myself am queer and non-monogamous and kinky. Uh, I had my first non-monogamous relationship when I was still in high school at 17 and it was a dating quad. So it was two, wow. two wow. men and two women. The boys were mostly gay, but liked making out with the two women in the relationship. And so we had our quad. We all went to prom together. It was very sweet. Um, and then dabbled in monogamy on and off and eventually found my way back to non-monogamy full time. So now I identify as solo poly and I haven't had any sort of monogamous relationship for six years seven years somewhere in there okay now when you say dabbled in in monogamy <laughs> do you mean that you had you know sort, sort of uh, semi-monogamous relationships or you had fully monogamous relationships that didn't uh that didn't really work for you i had fully monogamous relationships that crashed and burned in epic proportions <laughs> um i think that especially when I was younger, I struggled a lot with the conflict between what I internally felt was right for me, which was non-monogamy, and what everyone else told me I had to do to be a good grown-up, which was monogamy. Mm. So when I was 23, I got married uh, and was in a monogamous relationship with that partner. Uh, and we were together a total of four years, at the end of which I cheated on him, and our marriage dissolved in epically terrible fashion mm. and then uh 
started exploring non-monogamy more seriously after that. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot um there's a lot kind of packed into uh monogamy and with all the assumptions that we have, often we have different assumptions than our partners, which is where a lot of the conflict in relationships come from, where you know, um especially in the early days of a relationship, you know, you have this understanding of what a, a normal relationship is, but there really is no one normal relationship. Yeah. And even in my marriage, I had tried to negotiate some little speck of non-monogamy. The agreement was we would have threesomes with women because as someone who identifies as bi and queer, I was not willing to cut off a significant portion of my potential dating pool just because I was getting married to uh, the one man for me. Um, <laughs> but we only, we only ever ended up having one threesome, and it was shortly before we were married. And my now ex-husband had an objection because while he had previously before this threesome had sex with both of us, we had never had sex before. So we spent like five minutes just between the two of us getting acquainted. And to yeah. him, that felt really unfair and exclusionary. Oh, oh boy. Oh boy. Uh-huh. I wonder why that was your only threesome. <laughs> Well, so I had several others planned over the years. Like, I tried really hard to find us threesomes. And the issues I ran into were either they only wanted to fuck me, or he was just, we would have it scheduled, and then he would suddenly be not in the mood when it was time to actually do things. And it was this really frustrating situation of trying to get my needs met and trying to find any way possible to not feel confined and squished in this relationship and instead it just kept repeating um and i learned a lot about what does not work for me through the course of that relationship yeah it's it's something that is not unusual is um people who um who do uh desire an open relationship but compromising that for the sake of the you know the person that they're in love with because you know love is everything Um, and you know, and, and if, if it's not going to work for you, it's, it's not going to work no matter how much you love that person. And I think for me too, I was, I was young, you know, when he and I met, I was 21. He was almost 10 years older than me. And I thought that I would never get anyone as good as him. I thought he was too good for me and there was no reason I even deserved to be with him. And so I was willing to accept a lot of things that weren't actually making me happy because I was so convinced that anything after that would be worse. Yeah. yeah. If you're, if, if you're staying with somebody because you think you, you'll never be able to love again, um, it's, it's probably a toxic relationship. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was definitely a toxic relationship. And I, like I said, I've learned a lot. I think one of the biggest lessons for me was that, there is always someone better. And that's not like to say to like discard everyone in your life, but that's to say that you are never with the very best thing you could possibly (laughs) ever get. There are 8 billion people on this planet or near to, and you are going to find someone else who you can match with. Yeah, There is, there is this scarcity that comes from the monogamy mindset that I think paralyzes people from ending relationships that just aren't working. And I think we need to have better models of how to gracefully transition rather than having to like blow up because things just can't possibly survive any longer. Well, those, those are skills that people just don't learn and aren't taught, you know, how to, you know, when to call it quits and how to do it. 
Yeah. And if we look at popular media, which is where most people learn about relationships, the models are terrible. (laughs) And we don't, we get such terrible messages about what is and isn't salvageable, about how you get into relationship, about how relationship ends. And it makes it really hard to do anything outside of those scripts. Yeah. I think that the beauty of non-monogamy is you get to write your own script, but that's also a lot of pressure yeah. and a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. So before we get started, like, tearing all these relationship styles down into their component parts and trying to build our own Frankenstein's monster of, a, of different kinds of relationships, why don't we talk about some basic definitions? Of, of what we mean when we say the word swingers, open relationship, polyamory. Sure. So for me, my definition for these terms, swingers are folks who uh, look to have casual sexual connections with people outside of their um, central partnership. They tend to be heterosexual-ish or heteronormative-ish in appearance, but do not have to be. Um, swingers are generally not seeking any kind of romantic connection outside of their central partnership. Uh, and they are involved often in a larger culture that is associated with swinging. Um, people who are in open relationships, that is such a fascinating term because it can mean so many things. I've heard people use open relationship to refer to something where you have emotional fidelity, but not sexual fidelity all the way to people who have multiple loving relationships but don't like the terms polyamory <laughs> or relationship anarchy. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of the time when people just don't really fit into any of the other categories. Open relationship is what they end up using. Well, o- often it's when sure. they um, when they don't like yeah. some of the other yeah. terminology. Yeah. They might fit another slot perfectly, so to speak. Um, but... Um, but have an aversion to the term swinger or polyamory. They think of, you know, uh, polyamory as, you know, uh, hippies and burners. And they think of, you know, swingers as medallions and mustaches. Um, Mustachioed vulgarians. (laughs) Isn't it, though? I'm so confused. But um, in terms of a useful definition that's distinct from the others, uh, you know, generally the idea is, is casual sex. Um, without the the kind of the the assumption of group activity that swingers tends to bring, so generally open yeah. relationship is someone who's ha- who's who's in a relationship but is also having casual sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then polyamory is having multiple loving relationships with the full knowledge and consent of those involved, uh, which can mean any number of things, uh, depending upon who practices it. Uh, There's a good distinction to be made between those who practice hierarchical polyamory, in which there is a set of primary partners versus secondary versus tertiary partners. Primary partners, uh, in the definition I use for hierarchy, have a greater level of empowerment and decision-making ability over those in lower-level relationships. Uh, So hierarchy necessarily involves that people in primary relationships, in the way that I define it, people in primary relationships have a say in relationships in a way that people in secondary and tertiary do not. Yeah. And then non-hierarchical would be people who... Uh, may have priorities or preferences. They may see some people more. They have a deeper connection with someone, but there is not that ingrained power structure. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Because, I mean, when you share a house and a mortgage and maybe kids and things, there's there's obviously going to be a difference there versus someone that you see once a week. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's obviously going to be a difference, and that does not necessitate a power structure to enforce it. Yeah, yes. exactly. And For I sure. think... I think that's the big distinction is that I think a lot of people coming out of monogamous culture want to find some way to hold on to the perceived protections that monogamy affords a relationship. Uh, And I think that's where a lot of the desire for hierarchy comes from. Uh, The other main bucket that I would talk about within polyamory is solo polyamory. Mm -hmm. Um, I am solo poly. People do solo poly for a variety of different reasons and with a variety of different uh, structures. But in general, people who do solo polyamory are looking for a relationship style that is practiced uh, on an individual level and that values the individual and autonomy above uh, interdependence. Yeah. So the thing that I tell folks is no one gets to tell me what to do with my body, my heart, my mind, or my time. Those are all mine. And I get to decide what happens yeah. with them. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Misconception about solo poly is that people who are solo poly only want casual relationships or only want casual sex. That is absolutely not the case. Uh, I have very deep, meaningful, loving relationships. I just don't desire to be encoupled. Yeah. I want to be an individual relating with other individuals rather than a part of a whole. Yep, for sure. And then the last major category would be relationship anarchy. Um, relationship anarchists do not draw distinctions between different types of relationships, so like friendships versus romantic relationships, and instead approach each relationship as its own independent entity, finding its own level. Mm -hmm. Um, Relationship anarchy, I think, goes the furthest in deconstructing the ideas that come out of monogamy models and forcing people to question the assumptions that they have about what relationships are or what they entail. I... The way that I practice relationships is probably pretty close to relationship anarchy, but I don't identify as a relationship anarchist, largely because the first few people I met who talked about relationship anarchy were all assholes. (laughs) So (laughs) that has been my concern with that label. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, there there are there are more than enough assholes identifying in every one of these relationship models. Um, Sure. Relationship anarchy. Um, the, its primary strength is also probably its greatest weakness, which is you, you don't have any kind of like compression of information through like a shorthand. You can't, you can't, you can't describe your relationship with somebody without, you know, um, without a checklist because all the relationships are a la carte. Now, you know, um, in reality, every relationship is a la carte, but there are some useful, you know, uh, terminologies and and models that that, uh, most relationship styles can uh, can take advantage of and still have everything up for negotiation at the same time. Yeah. And another another big distinction of relationship anarchy is that most relationship anarchists believe in practicing relationships based solely on individual boundaries rather than including agreements or rules. So they don't necessarily have agreements with each other. They just practice based on their own individual boundaries, um, which can seem very complicated, particularly at first. Um, And I think relationship anarchy is a great idea. I think that 
especially when I first started being involved more in non-monogamy communities, most of the people talking about relationship anarchy were cisgender white men, uh, most of whom were straight. And um, there was a way in which it seemed like their thoughts on relationship were strongly influenced by the amount of privilege that those uh, demographics afforded them. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think that's where a lot of the assholery came from. Yeah. I saw a lot of people who labeled themselves as relationship anarchists, but practiced relationship libertarianism with a sort of like, those are your feelings, deal with them yourself, rather than a sense of um, building some kind of way to support each other even if, like, technically, yes, everyone's feelings are their own thing to deal with, there was just a callousness that I saw in a lot of relationship anarchists. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, and not exclusive to relationship anarchists, but there is a, um, a quality that sometimes people leverage in, in a really kind of ruthless and aggressive way, which is, you know, er, you know the idea that everyone's responsible for their feelings yeah. And they take that to mean that they don't actually need to have any um, compassion for anyone else's feelings. So anything, any uh, any pain that that person experiences is um, is theirs to deal with. You know, um, whereas I I tend to I tend to think of a model where you know we want to be compassionate, we want to you know be supportive of each other. We don't want to just cut everybody adrift. Yeah, and and again, I think. The folks that I saw doing that the most tended to be cisgender white men in particular. And it seemed like another outcropping of privilege that when you are a cisgender white man, you often have not been forced to develop the kind of ability to hold other people's emotions and do emotional labor that people of other demographics have had to develop in order to just get by in the world. And I think that mm -hmm. when they heard this concept of like, everyone's relationships are like their own responsibility, they took it to mean, well, then that's your responsibility to fix. I don't have to be responsible for anything. Even if what I did was hurt you, I don't need to help you process that hurt because your your emotions are your responsibility. And that's such an inaccurate understanding of that concept. Yeah. Yeah. That your emotions are your responsibility does not mean that we are not responsible for helping people out when we have hurt them. Yeah. We can draw our boundaries around what we're available for, but if you care about someone and you hurt them, part of maintaining a relationship is helping to clean that up. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a big difference between owning your shit and like just being set adrift to like flounder without like any caring supportive people around you. Yeah, absolutely. So like most most people in the various different relationship styles don't necessarily just follow these like sort of parameters that we've <laughs> that we've put forward, you know, we we know Choose one box and get in. Yeah, we you know, we're getting out of monogamy which was you know this firm set of rules and yeah. and you pick something else and then you just have a new different set of rules um but we know plenty of swingers who have like long-term sex partners like that they you know get together all the time there's also a lot of affection much mm -hmm. of the time there's there's even love we have like we talk to um like mal and peach who are you know sort of the swinging swingerist I can't even come up Swinging with words. Swingingerists. There Swing we go. Sorry, um, most swingers that that we have like in our intimate circle, 
And, you know, we, we tell each other that we love each other, like, all the time, you know, and that's, you know, supposed to, ooh, you, you can't care about people, um, was sort of one of the tenets of swinging that we first heard. Um, and there's also plenty of open relationships sure. with partners that might last decades. You might have a friend with benefits who, you know, is your longest running relationship. Um, yeah. Janet Rosa that we uh, talked to on a previous episode um, that, yeah, she she has like a friends with benefits from college that you know she's been with for like 20 years on and off when it works so these can be like really long-term intimate partnerships um and there's also plenty of polyamorists who go to wild sex parties or or you know single people in poly like yourself so there's just so many different ways to do all of these different things yeah and i think when i see a lot of problems is when folks try to like pick a label uh based on their fears and insecurities rather than based on what actually works for them Mm. i think yes especially when transitioning from monogamy to non-monogamy a lot of people are looking for well but how do i stay as safe as possible and i totally get that it's it's like moving from a land like so i was in the army for five years when you go from army life to civilian life, it is confusing and scary and hard. And it feels like if you could just go back within that, that setup, back within that framework, everything would be so much easier. And you try to find some kind of structure to impose upon yourself to help bring that back. When we pick our relationship style based on our fears and insecurities, what we tend to do is end up creating these reinforcing cycles of problems and resentment and and negative emotions. The funny thing about emotions like anxiety and fear is that the more that we do what they want us to do, the bigger they get. Mm Uh, As a psychologist, I do a lot of work with people who have trauma or PTSD. And the thing that I tell them is that your brain is designed to keep you safe. And so when you've had something really terrible happen to you, it's going to overperceive where there are threats as a way to try to keep you safe. And so it's going to see threats where there objectively are not. If you then start avoiding those perceived threats, you reinforce that they were threats to begin with and start progressively narrowing the entire world that is available to you. Oh, for sure. And I think when, you know, the the super common questions, right, are like, what about jealousy? (laughs) (laughs) Don't you get jealous? Don't you get jealous? Of course I get jealous. I personally don't have a ton of jealousy. It's not huge for me, but I do get jealous. We would never say to someone in a monogamous relationship, like, don't you get angry at your partner sometimes? How could you possibly commit to monogamy when you're going to get angry at them someday? Yeah. The problem is not the feelings. The problem is how we handle them and what we do to try to take care of those feelings. Yeah. Models like, for instance, hierarchical polyamory are often models that are designed to control someone else's behavior to prevent our feelings from being bad. And that's not usually a successful tactic. When we try to change what other people are doing to help us not feel bad, what we end up doing is making them feel constrained and making ourselves feel insecure, because as soon as they change from doing what we've asked them to do, we have this understanding that we are automatically going to feel bad. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a huge pattern with with uh, when you have a lot of rules, and it's like, 
um, you broke a rule. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, what impact has this had on me? You know, what was, you know, what was the reasonable course of action? It's you broke the rule and therefore I'm hurt and therefore you're wrong. And it creates a really easy sense of like blame and rightness and wrongness and gives you this like righteous anger of like, you are the one who fucked up. You are the bad one. (laughs) You are the one who must change. And, and I get it. Like we all wish that we lived in worlds of black and white but most of the things we're encountering are shades of gray and when we try to have these extremes it makes it much more challenging for us Mm -hmm. to actually have fulfilling lives Uh, i was at a poly happy hour here in the bay area and uh, i was there with one of my then partners and we encountered this couple who was there and they were talking about their relationship contract oh no and we thought they were joking but they were not. It was like eight pages long. And they whipped out their cell phones wow. so they could show it to us. And it included such provisions as like, when you bring over a partner, they're not allowed to eat my cheese in the fridge. <laughs> like, there was a literal cheese provision. And I just... Well, I mean, come on. It's like cheese. Yeah, could you imagine coming home and... Someone had eaten your someone cheese. Someone had eaten your cheese. Like... <laughs> like... Like, and, like, sure, people, you know, there, there were, people were fucking, you know, while I was, while I was at work, but someone ate my some goddamn cheese. Some slut ate my cheese. <laughs> some cheese slut. Some tart <laughs> ate my cheese. And so, and, and they were explaining how they came to that contract, which is that they had been open before and they had had something that was challenging for them. So they closed for a while and then came up with this contract so they could open again. Mm. And, and as I interacted with them, like what my brain kept saying was, you are guaranteeing another blow up. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It is just like that is just such a setup for something to go wrong because the more rules it is that you are responsible to, the more likely it is you're going to fuck up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I know that when we first opened things up, we had a lot more rules than we do now. But even as we sort of went very early on, we realized, you know, we probably don't need all of these rules at all. Um, And as long as we talk about things and and figure out, like, how to get our needs met and and which things seemed scary and and why, um, we just, we ended up letting go of, like, pretty much all of them. (laughs) But initially, we sort of did that, that classic thing of, like, needing to protect the original relationship and, like, like, I want to do all of these new things, but have my life look exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just not possible. Yeah. One of my friends, Jorith, she did a really excellent post about how the idea of opening up a relationship is in and of itself problematic because you aren't taking the same relationship and just adding more people. You are completely deconstructing the relationship you previously had and building an entirely new one. Yes, yeah, I read that. that's true of any major change. Like, that's true of having a child. That's true of moving. That's true of anything that is a major life change. You are starting with a brand new relationship. And... When I hear about people who have rules like you're not agreed to fall in love with anybody else, you can't necessarily control that. No, that that's that that works until it um, it doesn't. You know, it only works when it when you wouldn't need the rule anyway. Yeah, and it's I get where those rules come from. I think most of us in monogamy culture are taught that we are special because we are the only one, and so. 
it is a long journey to figure out what makes you special when you are not the only one of anything. Yeah. If you're not the only one they have sex with, if you're not the only one they give intimacy to, you have to figure out what creates that specialness for you or what feeds that specialness need. Yeah. And it's hard. And I think we all have dark nights of the soul sometimes frequently about like, do any of my partners actually care about me? Why are they dating me? Like, why would they bother when there are all of these amazing people out there? When there's someone who is thinner or prettier or more into sex or into weirder sex or whatever it is, you know, there are always things we can look for to reinforce the darkest parts of our brains. More interesting is my favorite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. More lighthearted easier to get along with exactly right? like me but there's younger there's always something <laughs> yes yeah. i think that it is it is so hard to learn how to find your own footing and stability in relationships but it's such a worthy journey yeah well we're going to take a short break and then when we get back we're going to talk about figuring out your own ideal relationship Okay, we're back on the Wet Coast here with Dr. Liz Powell. Hey, hey. So one of the main things you need to do, as we were talking before the break, um, to figure out your own ideal relationship uh, model or format or whatever, is figuring out your needs and wants. Yeah. And I, when I talk to people about relationship styles, I... I ask them to think about using a desires-based model of figuring out what style fits for you. So I have like a quick little worksheet that I put together that's going to be in my upcoming book um, and that you can also get online that looks at different dimensions of desire that come up for people and then lets you see like where you fall on those different dimensions. So like for instance, looking at a dimension of how much structure you want to a, for a relationship, how much variety you want, how much desire you have for sex, how much desire you have for romance, how frequently you want sex, how frequently you want romance, uh, including dimensions of kink as well. When you look at those dimensions, it gives you a clearer picture of like, who are you in relationship? What is it that makes you happiest? When you come from that perspective of your own desires, you are far more likely to find that you are drawn to less restrictive models than when you come from a space of your own fears and insecurities. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of us have not had the experience of taking the time to sit down and really ask ourselves what our desires look like. I think we kind of stumble into things or we come up with single fantasies, but we don't think about on like a larger level, what is it that I want from relationships? 
do I want the same person every day? For some people, that sounds fantastic, coming home to the same person every day. For me, that sounds like a nightmare. Like, that sounds like a, <laughs> yeah. a villain chasing me with a knife, right? Like, I... <laughs> Villain chasing you with the with a uh, with uh, toast and the newspaper to sit down to breakfast every morning. Ugh, um, right, God, oh my God. Uh, you know, people often have have hard time, um, you know, thinking about their needs, especially in a um, in a bigger sense like that, because of the fear that the that that won't line up with what their they have with their partner. That you know, interrogating what they really want will will challenge the status quo. It will. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and it and it will. And but there's there's a thing in there's a thing in relationships where if you're if you're if you're silent about your own needs and you spend all your time trying to anticipate your partner's needs while they're doing the same thing, you often end up compromising on the thing that neither of you wanted. And missing the opportunity to actually get what you both wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the thing that I would want folks to understand is there is no such thing as a safe change. <laughs> yeah. What we need in our relationships is a lot less work trying to please each other and a lot more work at being brave and honest. I see so many couples, especially who coming in for therapy, who have been essentially broken up for years, but they will not let it go. They won't be honest with each other about what's going on for them. I see couples who their sex lives have been suffering for half a decade, but because they weren't brave enough to talk to each other about it, nothing could happen. And by the time they come in, it is already so urgent for them to change it that it's hard to actually do the work because the work takes time. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to end your relationship if that is what is best for both of you. Franklin Vo and Eve Rickert, in their book More Than Two, one of the foundational principles they have is that the people in the relationship are more important than the relationship. There is yeah. this cultural idea that relationships necessitate sacrifice. And that's true to some degree, that you aren't 100% going to get your way in a, in a relationship. But they don't require sacrificing yourself. And I think that's where a lot of us get lost, particularly folks socialized as women. Yeah, that's I was going to say, because that's what we've been taught. Yeah, we've been taught when I was getting ready for my divorce, I felt like such a failure because it was my job to keep the relationship together. It didn't matter from that cultural perspective that he was an asshole to me. It (laughs) mattered that I wasn't able to fix that relationship. Yeah. And it's a toxic message. We have to be willing to walk away. As soon as you are not willing to walk away from a relationship, you're no longer in one. You're in a hostage situation. And figuring out, you know, what are the absolute deal breakers for you? Like, what are you, as much as, you know, what you want, like, what are you not willing to live with? And I think most of us don't ever question that. Like, we don't ever think about that because... Like so many of these things just come on slowly or like we've just been so used to it or we don't think we deserve better or like so many of the the different things that come up. But sitting down and and thinking about like what, like what am I just not willing to put up with? And it's most of us have not learned how to have good boundaries. Yeah. Most of us were not raised with good boundaries. And so... When we find ourselves in a situation where we feel really uncomfortable and we're saying yes to things that we don't want to say yes to or tolerating things we don't want to tolerate, we feel like we can't 
pull it back because we don't know how to set boundaries effectively and in ways that aren't like huge fighting screening matches. Yeah. Well, that that kind of um, brings brings us to something else that that occurred to me is that you know people often have a have a hard time being okay with the idea that they can change their mind, right? Like you, yes. people people have so much anxiety about expressing needs because it's like, well, you know, I've said this, and you know, and we do this. What if what if that was the wrong thing? What if I ask for the wrong thing? And, you know, you, you, then you just ask for something else. You say, you know what? I was wrong. I, this thing I thought I wanted, I, I didn't want at all, you know, and, and giving people permission to, to make mistakes. That's, that's one of the biggest things in relationships is, um, is acknowledging that mistakes are going to happen instead of like skewering each other over it. Yeah. When we started all this, like we were so sure of, of exactly what we wanted and every time like we just it seemed like every month we were like nope that wasn't it and you know trying something else and (laughs) um you know I just I was so sure that like I'm gonna have a ton of casual sex with lots of different people and you know that just didn't work for me and and then it's like I want these relationships and then it was like no actually that doesn't work for me either (laughs) so like trying to find that sort of middle ground of like friends with benefits that I really like to spend time with, but then who will leave me alone. It's it's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's what I tell folks is you need to plan for when things go wrong, not try to avoid things going wrong. Things are Mm. going to go wrong. You are going to make mistakes. You're not going, you're going to try something and it's not going to work the way you thought it did. You need to be able in your relationship to have those discussions. And I hear a lot of times people saying, well, I can't take it back now because then my partner would be disappointed. Mm. That that happens. Disappointment happens. Yeah. And, and it may be a deal breaker. And wouldn't you rather know now that it's a deal breaker than in five years of resentment yeah. and fighting? Well, yeah. And yeah, the, it's it's like, well, you know, what if what if my partner isn't willing to give this up well that that'll be useful information to have and then you can you can make a decision about how important that is or maybe there is some compromise maybe there's some way that that your partner can can have that thing and you can have the reassurance that you want that you're you're trying to get by curtailing it yeah it's tough and i think so many of us are unaccustomed to in an upfront and honest way asking for what we want to need in an upfront and honest way asserting our boundaries that a lot of folks try to get this stuff met in like sideways ways yeah where they're like they're they're waiting for their partner to buy them flowers to show that they love them rather than saying like hey honey i really like it when you buy me flowers i would love it if you did that more often yeah cuz asking comes- there, yeah, the asking is a problem, right? That there's this idea that things should be spontaneous, that there should be mind readers everywhere who know exactly how you want things to go in your relationship. And that doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. And so you have to ask for what you want in a way that is upfront and honest. If something's not working, you need to let them know in a way that is upfront and honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's almost a, a cliche that um, something isn't worth anything if you have to ask for it. But, you know... Um, in reality, giving somebody the opportunity to to meet our needs um, is is worth a lot rather than you know having them stumbling around and and not you know not not getting to know what our needs really are. And it's scary. It's scary to ask for what you want because what if they say no? Mm-hmm. There is a moment of vulnerability involved in all of these 
actions. When you tell someone like, hey, honey, what I really need is this, you are showing them something that feels to you very fragile and very delicate. And a lot of us have not had experience being vulnerable and having that held appropriately. And so it's scary. It feels intimidating to ask for the things that we want. And yet you have to. It's the only way to get them. Yeah. And and definitely as someone who, like, there was so much socialization about, like, not being needy. Yeah. Mm, and yeah. it's really difficult for me to reconcile having needs and being needy. Like, and so I basically consider having any needs as being needy. Yeah. yeah. Neediness, it, like... There's there's this this horrible thing in our culture where it's it's like you know needy is is one of the worst things that you can call somebody but you yeah. know how ridiculous is that that you know we all have needs and you know and um you know when someone is um is someone is is vulnerable to the state that we might describe them as you know as quote needy like you know um how is that um how is that a failure yeah, I think that like there is this conflation of this person wanted something that I didn't feel like giving them and someone yeah. being needy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I for me, I would define problematic neediness as people who are unwilling to accept a no. Right? Like if yeah. you ask for something and they say no and you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, that's a problem. But that's really coercion, not right. neediness. So, yeah, for sure. I, I think that <laughs> and it Funnily enough, monogamy culture teaches us a lot of coercion and control to get what we want. Yes. You're supposed to pressure people into giving you what you want because you only have one chance to get it. And and you're supposed to just like leave a bunch of hints as opposed to just directly asking for things. Right. It's I, I see this a lot a lot around like younger well people a little younger than me or around my age group talking about like wanting no drama or like needing to be chill Mm. and there's this fascinating way in which um having emotions is being stigmatized in the realm of dating that uh, the idea that you would ask someone you've been seeing like hey what are we doing here what are you open for? What are you available for? Is like drama or not being chill enough? There's this like race to be chillest to see who can care the least. And (laughs) whoever cares more is the loser. And that's so toxic Mm -hmm. for building true intimacy. I think that a lot of us these days feel like we have so much exposure to other people, but so little true intimacy and connection. And these stigmatizations of needs and of wants and of feelings are leading to a lot of that. Yeah, for sure. And I see it, I see it blamed on like hookup culture. I have a ton of casual sex that is very deeply emotionally connected in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it's hookup culture. Um, yeah. But it, um, it's, it, it, it is an interesting side effect. And, you know, I, I find that um, I find that in my age group, generally people who say you know no drama um tend to generate (laughs) intense amounts of drama just ridiculous Um, amounts of drama like ridiculous amounts of drama like it's it's like it's like they there's just so much drama that that they can't have there's no room for anyone else's yeah (laughs) yeah it's i have also seen that there's a direct correlation between how much someone talks about hating drama and how much drama they create (laughs) yeah yeah 
So, uh, you know, you mentioned the book More Than Two, which is a a fantastic resource. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, you know, there's a lot of other great books out there. And as you were mentioning, you're working on one yourself. So I'm super excited to get to read that when you're done. Yeah, it's a what I wanted to do with this book is create something very practical. A lot of the books that are available right now about non-monogamy are theory focused, which is great. They talk a lot about how to think about things and understand things. What I wanted to do was create a resource that is useful in those tough moments that has worksheets and checklists and conversation starters so that when you're having that conflict, you have something to pull out to give you something practical and concrete to do rather than just trying to fumble through it yourself. I and love so, that. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm I'm so jazzed about it. Um, so the, the book is called Building Open Relationships and the website is buildingopenrelationships.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do want this to be a useful book for folks. You know, right now in the realm of non-monogamy, there's the Jealousy Workbook, uh, and there's a couple of other books that have some practical sections. But again, most of it is just a lot of thinking and talking. And that is so useful, but it is Mm -hmm. incomplete. What I see people talking about is, yeah, so I read The Ethical Slut, I read more than two, like now what do I do? Yeah. Right, yes. And and the the practical worksheet that we used from opening up was mm-hmm. one of the the things that you know we we go back to usually like once a year and look look through and it and there's a there's a real tangible piece to that that is so useful because you can compare over time this is where we were this is where we are um, and it's you know it's quite fascinating and and I am such a practical person like I, I love the the thinking and the theory but I just you just want to have some lists to go through yes I want to check things off yeah. <laughs> I just feel so satisfied um <laughs> feel like we could have a sex party where we like check you know get to check things off like I oh that's I, hot I, I, I'm into that yeah like we, we should make this happen when you're in town <laughs> it could be like a it could be like a sex party scavenger hunt yeah. Oh my god. Can you be... find someone doing fisting? Can you find an 11? Can you find that, I, I we we got to make this happen. Yeah. It's I'm I'm really excited about the book because the the thing that I wanted as I was doing a lot of these as I was opening up and doing non-monogamy myself was some kind of idea of like how do I process these problems? These are the roadblocks that I'm hitting. Like what do I do now? How do I get through this? How do I communicate effectively? How do I figure out where my boundaries are? And so I'm hoping that this is a book that people get to grab and use. Uh, the When you get the book, you'll also have access to fillable PDFs of all of the worksheets mm-hmm. so that you can like do them over and over again without having to write in your physical book. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes it nice and easy for you to go back and reuse them. And so I just yeah. wanted to... Yeah, I always have such an aversion to writing in my book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's yeah. Wrong. No, I don't. You're wrecking your book. <laughs> right. So there will be fillable PDFs <laughs> that everyone can get with their book. Uh, so you can come back to them again and again and really dive into making your relationships stronger and healthier and more ethical. Yeah, that's fantastic. Because, you know, everything always comes down to communication. Um, you know, you've got you've got to know your your own self, but then you also need to be able to communicate that to to your people. 
And so many of us don't have good communication skills, especially when we're upset about something. Yes. Like the stronger our emotions are, the poorer our communication tends to be. And so like in the book, I have a whole tough community, like tough conversations worksheet that helps you figure out like, what are the emotions you're feeling? Here's a whole list of emotions, which are the ones that are coming up. Like, what does that make you want to do? What's the story that you're telling yourself about what's happening here? Uh, What did objectively happened? Like, if we were to watch a video, what would we see? Mm -hmm. Um, And then what is it that you want or need here? What would be helpful for you so that you have this, like, way to walk through? Okay, I'm feeling really angry. Okay, what are the feelings? What happened? What do I need? And then you can, like put the pieces in a a way to talk to your partner that's going to allow them to hear what you're saying and actually respond to it effectively. Yeah. Well, and it's it's important to to also remember that communication is a skill that you can develop. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of people will write themselves off or write somebody else off as like, "Oh, they're not a good communicator." And so, um at that point, what we just stop trying um but it's it's a thing you can learn it's a thing that you can get better at and you know the key probably the biggest key to communication is not you know is not you know knowing a lot about how to communicate or um you know or or being really practiced about it but um just finding finding ways to be um to express uh vulnerability you know to because because when you when you speak from a place of vulnerability um you you're not going to be defensive it's not going to turn into um to the sort of um competitive dominance that so much uh, communication is when we argue yeah and, and i think when we lead with vulnerability it encourages the people we're communicating with to show their vulnerability as well yes yeah because that can be a, a really tricky thing if if your partner has a tendency to be defensive yeah. mm-hmm. and it can be really difficult to put yourself out there when you know that you're probably going to get this reaction and sort of like figuring out how to take that and not just decide, okay, I'm never going to talk about anything <laughs> ever again because I don't want to face this reaction. From now on, we do not talk. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think the, the thing that I see, too, is when we're feeling upset about something, if we can find a way in ourselves to focus on kindness and curiosity, it's mm-hmm. very helpful. Like, what is the kindest explanation I can come up with for this behavior? Yeah. 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 yeah I'm absolutely. wondering, I'm curious, like, what might have been going on for them here? When you have kindness and curiosity, it prevents you from coming up with stories that we tend to come up with, which are they, they're doing this because they hate me, they are yeah. doing this because they don't care about my feelings, right? The the stories we come up with tend to be less flattering than the ones we could come up with if we had kindness and curiosity. Well, and, and they're, they're often... Um, they're often very hyperbolic and, oh, yeah. you know, because that's what we see modeled in media, right? The people th- hurling accusations at each other, people interpreting each other's behavior and words in the least generous and least compassionate uh, lens possible. Right. It, it's the classic, like, hey, uh, you know, I, I really like you to rewrite this report. Well, so you say that I don't know how to write anything. You're saying that I don't know what I'm doing. You say that I'm terrible at my job. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And it's it's easy to go to that place, especially when we're feeling hurt or scared. It's easy to perceive that there is something there to scare us. Yeah. And we have to remind ourselves that 
the person we're in a relationship with is in that relationship with us for a reason. They are choosing to be there. They are probably not intentionally hurting us. And if they are, then we shouldn't be in a relationship with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One, so one of the communi- communication tricks that I use, um, because, you know, sometimes people... They they haven't learned how to communicate directly. They might they might uh, communicate um, you know what what they call passive aggressively, um, uh, or you know so things can come out as you know uh, sort of coercive or accusatory, and um, and I what I try to do is pretend that they are making a reasonable request that they are that they are asking reasonably and then i respond in kind you know i i answer the reasonable question that they are hinting at i i answer the reasonable request that they are are you know are trying to leverage on me because they just don't have the 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 vocabulary to to ask for that to express their needs as needs and instead you know have to try to to express it as as uh, coercion yeah yeah, that's a great tool. I thought you were supposed to punish people for doing things wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I try I not mean, to punishment do that. can be hot when it's clearly negotiated, but, <laughs> you know, that's needs to be clearly negotiated. No, when I, when I was younger, my, my response to, uh, to uh, passive aggressiveness or ultimatums was always to, to blow up the world. Like, just call, right. call, the, call the bluff just just turn into the storm and you know and 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 it didn't always get me what i wanted right like it was (laughs) yeah but you know um but you know like the saying goes spite is its own reward (laughs) and you know and sometimes you know i i can be a bit hot-headed right and so if someone starts throwing unreasonable request my way when i'll be like okay then i guess this is not going to work for us what kind of relationship do you feel good having if this is what i have available to you right right because i where many people are afraid of transitioning relationships i am like aggressively transitioning relationships (laughs) (laughs) i'm like oh okay so let's transition let's do this thing that's great let's just read something else let's just redefine our lives yeah but, you know, flexibility is an important uh, <laughs> component of, you know, your ideal relationship. <laughs> Very true. As well as knowing your boundaries, which is where what you tend to, to get to pretty quickly. And I mean, you know. we, we, oh, yeah. could, we could probably do like three episodes on, on boundaries alone. Oh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, like knowing your boundaries and, and limits. Um, so so much of what we do is and the stress we cause is is, is about these things being unspoken. Us, you mm-hmm. know, us having resentment about people breaching boundaries that we haven't expressed. Right. Absolutely. I uh, I come from several relationships, including familiar relationships, where like boundaries were not really allowed, yeah. and yes. so uh, for a long time. What I did was like just not have them, and then I kind of yeah. decided that was shit and changed my mind about it. So now I tend to be very, very clear about my boundaries and let people know where they are. Um, like if someone goes on a date with me, probably by the end of our first date, if they want to continue seeing me, what I'll let them know is at this point in my life, what I have available is like once a month for most people. And that's that's the most you're probably going to see me. If you need to be seeing me more than that, that's not probably going to work for me. Um 
I am not okay with you giving me shit about having other dates. If it's Mm -hmm. making you feel insecure, we can talk about that. And at the end of the day, I am not going to stop dating other people, no matter how upset it makes you. Yes. You know, and so there's there's a lot of things that I've become very firm on that are non-negotiable. There's a lot of stuff I'm willing to bend and change depending on the person. But I am very, very clear on where my limits are. And I let people know right up front, like, hey, it seems like this might be coming towards something that's going to be a limit for me. Here's where my limit is. How do we want to handle that? Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's I think that's really... Um that seems really effective because usually what most people do is they wait until they're entangled to start, yeah. you know, establishing um, how often are we going to see each other? How, you know, how, how often are you going to see other people? How often are we going to talk? Knowing right off the bat, okay, here's what it's reasonably going to look like is probably a really great way for, you know, for setting expectations. Well, I think in general with boundaries, people don't tend to assert them until someone is stepping over them. Yeah. That there is this way that the fence doesn't appear until it's being hit. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And that's not helpful, right? And I think if we think about our boundaries, not as like rigid concrete walls, but instead as this like jelly zone that moves depending on where we are, where our partner is, where we're in that with, with that relationship, the more information you can give people about where that zone starts and ends, the better they can make sure that they don't start stepping over it. Mm-hmm. It's really important. Um, so for instance, I was dating this guy on our fourth date while I was naked in my bed and he was in bed with me. He started criticizing my work in like oh, a boy. really derisive tone. <laughs> and I did not know that that was a boundary I needed to set with people. But boy, howdy, <laughs> did I set that boundary hard and fast, yeah. you know? Um, and it's, if you wait until someone this is, is stepping on your toes. a weird time for negging. Right? It's a weird time for negging. And I, <laughs> I have learned recently that I do not respond at all to negging. That that is like the worst <laughs> tactic you could use with me. Because as soon as you say something, I'm going to be like, I don't give a fuck about your opinion. So... And yeah, just... how about you just shut the fuck up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, it's probably time for all of us to shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Liz, um, where can people find you and find out more about what you're up to? Uh, my website is sexpositivepsych.com, and you can find out more about the book at buildingopenrelationships.com. Uh, there's a form there you can fill out so that you get emails about all of the latest updates. Uh, and then on Twitter, I'm at sexpausepsych. Basically, if you search sexpositivepsych anywhere, you'll probably find me. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the Wet Coast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was awesome. It was our pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please help us get into the ear holes of more listeners by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform. Follow us on Twitter at Wet Coast Cat, Cat with a K, at Serious Flick, at On the Wet Coast. Email comments or questions to contact at onthewetcoast.com. You can hear a lot more of Cat and Flick by buying the audiobooks of Cooper Beckett's novels, A Lifeless Monogamous, and Approaching the Swingularity at coopersbeckett.com. Save 10% with code WETCOAST. Go to onthewetcoast.com for Kat's blog and more, or find her over at lifeontheswingset.com. You can get Kat Stark's book, Yelling in Pasties, The Wet Coast Confessions of an Anxious Slut, 
Available now on ebook and paperback. Go to Amazon.com or visit OnTheWetCoast.com for links to other marketplaces. And check out other awesome sex-positive podcasts on the Swingset Network at Swingset.fm. I'm Tina Horn, author of Love Not Given Lightly and host of the Wire People Into That podcast. And you're listening to a Swingset podcast at Swingset.fm. Many of us in non-monogamy land started out in... (laughs) I can't even say monogamy anymore. We tend to be heavily edited. Many of us. That's fine. (laughs) And you can get Cat Start's book. Cat, I can't even say my own name today. Cat Start. Cat Start. Sess, fazes, a